Hello and welcome to our season 10 premiere of Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. Did you forget what show we were for a moment there? I did forget. <laughs> I was more excited that it's a season 10 premiere. I know. So we- welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, guys. This is really exciting. Welcome to series 10. Isn't this momentous? We've also just celebrated our five-year run of the show. We've been doing it for five years, which is momentous. It's just amazing, isn't it? Five-year birthday of the show. We've got our new logo now, which is even more exciting. We haven't had a new logo for the entire five years, so that's that's a wonderful little bit, bit to share with everybody. And we're also going to be having some... Can we tell people yet? Let's or not? tell people. Let's tell people this weekend, if you're listening when this releases, as long as everything goes to plan, and I'm saying that as a bit of a caveat, just in case it doesn't, we're going to have, drum roll, a website Woo-hoo! and merchandise. Ah, website and merchandise. I'm so excited about both of it. The website's looking absolutely amazing. Bethan has done loads of work on that. It looks absolutely fantastic. And the merchandise is another level. It's it's just utterly brilliant. I'm so pleased with how it's come out. Oh, I'm so glad you're happy. I've had a lot of fun um, getting everything together and putting it all in, into place. It's taken a long time and it's not been easy, but it's been a lot of fun. So we'll uh, we'll give you the links and everything uh, probably next week once it's all live and hopefully working. But yeah, listen out for that. Yeah, we should have an announcement if you're listening to this on the Wednesday it's released or if you're a patron a little bit early should be be announced on the Friday evening. So yeah, put the date in your diaries, guys. I don't think anyone's going to do that. Uh, <laughs> so on the, subject, on the subject of Patreon, shall we take a moment to thank our newest Patreon supporters who have signed up over the past couple of weeks? Yes, and there is quite the list. So hold on to your horses. Here we go. A huge, huge thank you to all of our existing Patreon supporters, but of course our newest Patreon supporters. We have Emma Ferrito, Dawn Wells, Rebecca Ruer, Caitlin Bruce, Tilly Taylor, Amy Jones, Jodie Lewis, Ailey Grant, Claire Fuller, Philly, Kim Keeft, Sarah Bogard, Fiona Ewan, Rachie Rue, MP, Avine Rogers, Mary Dunbar, Caroline Scott, Carly Coleman-Price, Sarah Stevenson and Mandy B. Thank you very much. As Bethan said, thank you to all of our existing Patreon supporters too. Your support over on Patreon makes a massive difference. It means that we're able to invest in the show and create websites and merchandise, all of those wonderful things. And if you want to join these people, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And in return for your financial support of the show, we will reward you with all sorts of different bonus content. We've got some new stickers with our mugs on them. Uh, we've got all sorts of stuff going on over there. So do check it out. Patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. This week's case is going to feature horrendous violence perpetrated by a group and aimed at one specific individual. It was recommended quite a while ago, actually, by listener Sean. Thank you so much for listening and for recommending this case. Over the years, we've looked at a few cases where mob mentality has taken over. And every time we cover a case like this, I think about what would I do if a group I was with became violent? I do feel very confident that I'd either attempt to stop the attack or at least get out of the way and call the police. 
It's a it's a difficult one, isn't it? I, I, first of all, I don't think I'd ever be. I don't know it, with a group of people who turned violent for. Agreed. I self, feel like that would be very unlikely. But I think if that did happen, I remember when I was at university, I was out. Uh, we were just out having a few drinks, and a fight broke out at a pub or a bar, something like that. And I, my instinct was to just remove myself from that situation and kind of move away. And mm. a former friend, obviously, because all my friends are former friends. Oh, um, Mark a, <laughs> Of course. So a guy that I used to know, he was a really good friend, actually. And yeah, really good friend. I thought I knew him, you know, really well. And he just got involved in the fight. And before I knew what was happening, he was sort of in the middle of it, landing punches on just anyone he could land punches on just for the fun of it. And I, I just, I always remembered that and thought, what a bizarre thing to do. I would never react like that. And he was just like, yeah, let's have a fight and let's punch this random guy in the head. Um, so I just kind of moved away, but I saw that and I wasn't happy about it. Um, so I'd like to think I would, yeah, just remove myself from that situation and, and call for help if help was, was needed. Yeah, it, it boggles my mind that some people like, like that old friend, ex-friend, I almost thrive on that violence, whereas I'm very much, I will remove myself from the situation and if necessary, like you said, if necessary, go and get help in some way, shape or form. However, what I would say is, as we're going to see in this week's episode, it's not as simple as it sounds going and getting help for everyone. Some people find themselves unable to speak up or unable to go and get help for many reasons. So what causes someone to think they're going to join in? Mob mentality, herd mentality or hive mentality, there's a few different names for this, comes from a base human want or human need to fit in. So I've done some reading into the psychology behind mob mentality. I used quite a few different sources, but one of the ones that I wanted to really highlight and mention is um, a write-up on the subject in on a website called Tech Target. There was a journalist called Kate Brush and she described this And the article was just brilliant. I thought it was a really well-written article. Also made me chuckle that her name was similar to Kate Bush. So Kate Brush, um, she said, mob mentality arises naturally. And this principle is induced and manipulated by advertisers, political leaders, social influencers through social media, and also individuals in order to gain and protect their social influence. This isn't just something that happens on the odd occasion. This is being used day in, day out by different people. Financial analysts have observed the effects of mob mentality when masses of investors behave emotionally and rashly together, buying all one stock, for example, rushing to buy stock because someone says it's hot. And the Salem witch trials between 1692 and 1693, they're a really good example of mob mentality. When hysteria began in this Massachusetts town after a group of young girls claimed to be possessed by the devil and accused several local women of witchcraft, villagers then as a group adopted that fear, the accusations of witchcraft grew and the unfair imprisonment and trial took place then of over 200 people. In the end, 30 people were found guilty of witchcraft, 19 were executed by hanging and seven died whilst in jail when it became, because that hysteria just spread through the whole town. That That's interesting because it reminds me a little bit of Folia Dur, which we covered in the Madness yes. of Twins episode. Yeah. And it's, it's almost folly of, you know, the many with this. So you've got lots mm. of people, this contagious hysteria and this whipping up of a crowd and whipping each other up into what then becomes mass hysteria, where 
yeah, people will act out in a different way than if they were on their own. So re- in recent times, you will sometimes see mob mentality at sporting events. Attendees will, some of the attendees will be in a, a really excited and boisterous mood and that's that's contagious. You see that kind of going around. The weather, alcohol availability will kind of enhance that mob mentality further it's more likely in that case for a group to carry out extreme activities like charging onto the field or major outbursts if the referee makes a call that they don't like. Whereas if you just said to one normal person, run onto the pitch, it's very unlikely they're going to do that. But if they've seen 20 other people do it, they're like, yeah, I'm going to cack on as well. Kate Brush explained how mob mentality was first identified by Gabriel Tarde and Gustave Le Bon in the 1800s. The principle has since been analysed in numerous behavioural psychology studies. For example, a study performed by Professor John Krauss and Dr John Dyer of the University of Leeds in England, and I thought this was so fascinating, they found that subjects told to walk randomly around a room will instinctively start following whoever has more confidence. So in this study, subjects were told to follow their own random path around a large hall. A separate smaller group of students, of not students, of subjects, sorry, were told to walk a specific path. Those following random paths actually quickly started copying the subjects that were given specific paths and they found it only takes 5% of people walking confidently to influence the other 95% of walkers. How crazy is that? I, I suppose it goes back to having a leader, doesn't it? We always gravitate towards a leader and if there isn't somebody who's self-identifying as a leader, then we will kind of decide who that person should be. And then, yeah, follow their lead quite literally in this scenario. It's we're just animals, aren't we? Still, do you know what I mean? We're not yeah. as intellectual. We're, we're still driven heavily by our instincts. Definitely, and also being part of a group can cause a person to lose their self awareness or experience what's called deindividuation, which is when you become less likely to follow normal social restrictions and more likely to lose your sense of individual identity. So that can lead to a destruction of the person's natural inhibitions and they might perform an activity they'd never normally do. Their values, their principles have been replaced by those of the group in general. And being part of that large group can make you feel invisible and therefore invincible. You believe that you're not going to be detected or held accountable for your actions as long as you exist under the shield of the group, which does make sense. But God, it must be a shock when... You're a decent, normal member of society, but then you become embroiled in this gang that's or group that's kind of taken you over and you've just stopped doing what you would normally do. And then suddenly you look back and you go, wow, I disregarded my beliefs and values and I just did what the group said. But whilst, whilst we might not have examples where we've been with a group who have acted violently and we've joined in, I, I'm sure all of us have got examples where we've been with a group who have done something that we alone wouldn't have done and I know I've had those moments where I've looked back and thought oh god we really went in on that person in terms of you know picking on one particular point and hammering it home and I wouldn't have done that if it was just me and them but when you've got a group yeah it's it can almost become not bullying but yeah just lots of people on one person and and you you do just find yourself joining in not everybody but you're more likely to join in you can or you you don't think quite how bad that is until afterwards and you think god that was actually really horrible that was awful yeah that was horrible of me 
But then equally, you've kind of got it on the flip side. We were talking recently, weren't we, about iced coffees and stuff. And I said, well, that was the only reason I first ever drank iced coffee was because everyone in the branch was having coffees and everyone in the branch was doing a coffee run. And I wouldn't because I didn't really drink hot drinks. And then someone was like, well, why don't you just try this instead? And I wanted to be a part of the group. I wanted to be a part of everyone having a nice drink drink as a treat. Now, obsessed with a nice coffee. Absolutely love it. Drink coffee every day. Yeah, exactly the same. We're both still loving our iced coffee. And I've got my new iced coffee cup with C in red on it. Sad. It's not sad. It's very exciting. It's sad when it's your own podcast. (laughs) That is the only thing. I always (laughs) think people might look at it and then be like, that's you on there. Like, are you even a real podcast if you just made up a fake podcast (laughs) to put on a cup? (laughs) Of course, as a true crime podcast, we cover stories not about lovely stories of people having a group get together and they all enjoy a lovely time of iced coffee. We talk about stories that involve the worst of human nature. And we sometimes see a ringleader in the cases that we cover, don't we? And other times it's the group in general egging each other on until they get to the point of no return. The group sometimes feel like they have a valid reason for their violence, but sometimes there feels to be there's no real reason. It's just pure and simple evil. Sometimes there's there's a reason, even if to me or you it's a stupid fucked up reason there might be a reason to that group but sometimes it just isn't either this is what terrifies me about prisons as well and we're gonna in our uh in this week's episode of crime wave we're gonna be i'm gonna be talking about prison because uh, we just had the, the story of daniel khalif who's escaped from prison oh my and gosh I and guess, thank goodness he's been caught yeah that was a i mean scary four days. days on the run yeah that mm-hmm. was horrific particularly for people around west london where he was known to be headed and where he was apprehended yeah. in the end so um but yeah i kind of think in prison that's got to be you're going to have this mob mentality on a, a humongous scale and you're so vulnerable if you're not joining into that. And you're just going to have these gangs of people that are going to behave. They're, they're the worst people in society anyway. And they're going to behave even worse than they would on their own when they're with other like-minded people. Exactly. And you would never normally think about joining a prison break, for example, because you know that that's a stupid idea. But when everyone's going, you might just drop everything and run. So mob mentality arises from that natural desire to fit in. And as we mentioned before, that sometimes takes away your decision-making skills. It becomes more challenging for you to evaluate and to stand by your personal beliefs if they contrast with what the group is doing. And this disregard for personal opinions and the fear of, of upsetting the rest of the group, that's the major issue with mob mentality. If it was a reasonable discussion, everyone would be talking and having a discussion and, and you wouldn't have the issue with putting your voice forward. But in mob mentality, the voices that stand up against what's going wrong, I'm saying about going wrong because we're obviously a true crime podcast, but those voices that try and speak up for good are silenced through mockery. Potentially there's something that puts fear into you. That immediately stops your individual thoughts. It reveals to the other group members that disagreements are not welcome as well. So other people who may have spoken up would then not want to because they would feel like, well, I'm going to have the same issues as that person had as well. Kate Brush went on to say that a lack of human decency can also be found in mob mentality. So when alone, individuals are really unlikely to be open about or express their racist, abusive, destructive opinions or other harmful traits. However, 
when introduced to mob mentality, these hateful characteristics become more common. And even if something begins as a peaceful protest, it can easily turn into a violent outburst with looting and willful destruction because individuals become more concerned with following everyone else. They're no longer willing to make their own decisions. So the idea of mob mentality brings to mind other cases we've covered. Back in 1993, Stephen Lawrence was subjected to a brutal, racially motivated attack from a gang of six white young men which saw him stabbed to death. 19-year-old Rosemary Boxall threw herself from a third-story window in South London to escape a horrifying attack from two girls in 2008. So she jumped 50 foot to the ground after being slapped, abused and having aerosol sprayed in her eyes by Hatice, who was 13, and Kemi, who was 17. In 2007, Robert Maltby and Sophie Lancaster were subjected to a violent attack which left Sophie in a coma and caused her death, purely for the fact that they were dressed differently. In August 2007, the country was shocked when Gary Newlove was brutally beaten to death by a gang of youths outside his home after he confronted them about their antisocial behaviour. But sometimes it goes further though. Sometimes it's not just a sudden, escalated, unprovoked attack. When we covered the brutal murder of Stephen Donaldson, we heard about how his ex-girlfriend and two men planned to attack him. They lured him to his death. This was back in 2018. He'd been beaten severely and then set on fire and his dead body was found near to his charred car. And when we discussed the murder of Suzanne Kappa, we heard how Suzanne had died from multiple organ failure, rising from 80% burns after being deliberately let on fire. But prior to this, prior to being lit on fire, she'd been kept prisoner for seven days and tortured. This is the one of the cases that comes to mind when I was saying sometimes they have a reason. It might sound stupid to us, but the perpetrators have a reason. They had their reasons for this, but absolutely stupid reasons in that. And her story is probably the one true crime story I've never been able to shake since I first read about the manner in which she was tortured. Yeah, same. It's the case that, that we covered that probably prompted the most people to get in touch with us to say this is just truly sickening and this is shocking and I've never heard anything like it before. We had so many comments, so many messages from people that were just truly shocked and obviously they're people that consume true crime material and have heard lots of things and we were the same and then we get to Suzanne Kappa and it is just, it's like a whole other level to anything else we've ever covered. It was just words just fail me as, as to the the brutality of the torture that she endured over those days and and then finally when when she was killed and her bravery at trying to survive yeah it's again it will stay i know it will stay with both of us forever so i'm afraid to say that this week our case is sadly one that's really similar to Suzanne's last days and in a similar way to how Suzanne's tragic story went, we're looking at a young man who was betrayed in the most horrific way by people he genuinely believed were his friends. We're heading to Southampton and back to 2012. But before we do, we're going to hear from our show sponsor for this week. BetterHelp always give us a prompt to think about with our sponsor slots for them. And this week, they've asked us to think about a time in our lives when racing thoughts were keeping us up at night or waking us up early or just in general preventing us from being able to enjoy our lives. I've always suffered with poor sleep. It is interrupted so easily by anything, but most especially when I'm stressed and my mind is going round and round in circles. Also, don't you just hate it when you're trying to fall asleep and your brain 
it suddenly just kind of kicks into overdrive and it's almost like it's talking and your thoughts are racing right before bed. I I know lots of people have that. I've certainly had that. I've struggled with that over the last couple of months and that's seen me have to increase the amount of therapy that I have from I'd gone down to once a month. I'm now twice a month. And it's really hard to switch off and get the sleep that you so desperately need to recuperate and be able to face another day with some kind of resilience. So, And it can be anything, can't it, that runs through your head. It can just be tasks that you've got to complete. It can be something you feel bad about that maybe brings a feeling of shame. It can literally be anything, but your brain won't switch off and it is so tough to get it to switch off and to get to sleep. Yeah, and you just sometimes find yourself thinking, God, I said X, Y, Z, and I bet that person thinks I'm an absolute idiot for that. I can't believe I said it. I can't believe I said it this way. What if I've upset them? What if I've offended them? And then it's just going round and round and round. And I'm sure in reality, even if they were a bit peeved at the time, they're past it. They're not, yeah. it's not keeping them up at night, saw, but it's I keeping saw, me up at night. I think that, I think, I think, why am I thinking about this? It was 2017. Why has that popped into my head now? Yeah, and you're but it right. Does. Even if, it really Even if I you. did something wrong and they were annoyed about it, it was seven, six, seven years ago. They're going to be over it now. And perhaps I should be too. So it turns out one great way to make those racing thoughts go away is to talk them through. Therapy gives you a place to do that so you can get out of your negative thought cycles and find some mental and emotional peace. And I know that's something that's definitely worked for me, as I said. there's I've been in therapy for nearly three years now, and there's times when I've increased it and times when I've taken my foot off the gas with it a bit as and when I've needed to. And being able to speak with a professional and talk through some of these random thoughts that are coming into my head and work it out, literally work it out, makes a massive difference. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash red today to get 10% off your first month. So that's betterhelp.com slash red. Jamie Dack was a young man at the time of our case in April 2012. He was just 22 years old. And whilst he did have a family who loved him, he was an independent soul who often went wondering when he needed to clear his mind. He was later described by his dad as a loving son, brother, nephew, cousin and friend who cared for everyone. He was a gentle soul who never hurt anybody. One of Jamie's passions was to try out adrenaline sports. He'd tried his hand at go-karting, quad biking and paragliding. His family described him as fearless. His family said Jamie was well liked by everyone. He liked to chat. He made friends easily. He had a trusting nature. Prior to the fateful Easter weekend that our case this week centres around, Jamie had gone through a breakup and had been in a particularly vulnerable state. He'd chosen to move out following the breakup and had gotten a room at a hostel until he could find a new place to live. The social and outgoing young Jamie spent time going out with friends as well as seeing his family, but tragically the crowd he saw as his friends were anything but. The group he thought were friends of his consisted of Lee Nichols, Ryan Woodmansey, Andrew Dwyer Skeets and Donna Chalk, who was Dwyer Skeets's girlfriend. Their ages have been reported differently in different places. So Chalk was the youngest. She was somewhere between 20 and 22. 
Nichols was around 30, and Dwyer Skeets and Woodmancy were in their mid to late 20s. These were, of course, not real friends to Jamie. They were people who, I guess, were in a similar place to Jamie. And I mean this in a few different ways. They were similar ages. He was 22. They were in similar places in their lives. And of course, geographically, which we always find is is a key element, isn't it? If you can get someone away from a group of people, then they're not under that spell or they're not kind of going to be attracted to spending time. But when people are hanging out in the same places as you, you're just naturally going to start to spend time with them. And I think that's what happened here with Jamie. He'd gone to this hostel and he wasn't surrounded by the positive influence of his family all the time anymore. I'm just distracted because Bethan's put, uh, you've done one of your specials, Bethan, and put pictures in of the assailants here. I have. What a crew we've got here. We'll put these on our social media. So yeah, they'll be part them. of the. It's Donna, they're just a horrible looking. They are a horrible, horrible looking, group, looking bunch. It's Donna that's bothering me the most. Um, uh, I know. Yeah. On the evening of March the 21st, 2012, Jamie was discovered lying motionless on the ground, on his back with a swollen cheek and a cut above his eye. And one witness described how he was surrounded by a group of people as he lay there. Why had he been beaten up? Well, Donna Chalk had made up a lie that Jamie had tried to put his hand down her trousers when he was drunk. Her own boyfriend didn't believe this, but Nichols, a violent man who's been described as someone who wants to be seen as a leader and a punisher, he decided that he was going to teach Jamie a lesson. Doormen at the nearby pub were told of the assault and they dialed 999 and police and ambulance staff were soon on the scene. Whilst the attack had seen just Nichols punch Jamie to the ground, the others were well aware of what had happened to him. So Chalk and Dwyer Skeets had been living in a squat in a one-bedroom flat and Chalk mentioned in front of the first paramedic on the scene that she'd met Jamie at a party that night. But later, Nichols had arrived back at the squat holding a baseball bat saying Jamie was unconscious in the Aldi car park. So then the group headed back to go and see what had happened to him. Jamie from his hospital bed, told police that he remembered nothing of the attack. He didn't want to press charges. He just said, no, I don't know what happened. And no arrests were made. But obviously the police did kind of want to keep track of Jamie and they wanted to make sure that he was okay. But he he literally said to them, nope, I'm fine. And they he was released from hospital when he was well enough. This is, that's a major concern. I'm not saying they've necessarily done anything wrong. The police had their hands tied. There was only so much they could do. But, uh, you know, I with what we're going to go on to talk about, I'm sure this is one of those turns in the road where a different path could have been taken and Jamie would be fine and alive today if they'd moved him or he'd moved or something like that. You know, it was just mm. an opportunity maybe for, uh, an intervention in in the fate of what was going on to eventually happen. And a week after this attack, one of the officers who had actually attended the scene of the attack visited the flat where the group was squatting in response to noise complaints. The police officer found Jamie Dack there and tried to speak to him about this, but he said he didn't want to make a complaint about the attack. He said his phone had been missing and he wanted to get it back himself, and that's why he'd gone to the group. But I think from from the reports, it sounds like he was 
He was still hanging out with them. He tried to make an excuse and the police officer tried to say to him, are you sure you want to be hanging around with this group? But there was there was nothing to, you know, you can't stop an, a grown adult from hanging out with whoever he wants to hang out with. At some point around this time as well, photos were taken of Jamie's injuries by Dwyer Skeets and were sent to Chalk's phone. And it's been surmised after the fact and at trial that these were taken and shared in like a sick kind of trophy way, like in a sick way of getting pleasure. Look at what happened to him. Even though they didn't actually partake in this this violence, she'd caused it by making up this lie. Yeah. It just makes me really heartbroken that Jamie had this wonderful family. They would have wanted to help him through his breakup and the pain and anguish of that. His family probably would have done anything to support him, but Jamie was more drawn to this group of just absolute wasters that were no good to him and he would have been really vulnerable at that time because going through a breakup is really hard and you're not necessarily in your right mind and And you're going to make some bad decisions yeah practically homeless yeah so it would have been quite easy I guess for them to take advantage of him and not only had Nichols been violent towards Jamie, but the group soon realised that they could use Jamie for their own needs too. They decided to steal from Jamie in order to fund their night out at a rave in Bournemouth on Easter Friday night. So they plotted that they were going to take his laptop, which they would then sell for £100. And that way Nichols would have the money that he needed to go with the rest of the group, as well as another friend called Amber Patterson. That was Lee Nichols's former girlfriend. Some reports state that Amber was his ex, others call her his girlfriend. I'm not 100% sure on whether or not she'd agreed to go back out with him, but basically it was his ex. He'd reassured her that he changed his ways and she was then coming with the group to join the group and then also go to this rave with, with him. However, despite him reassuring her that he changed his ways and he was no longer the person that she'd broken up with, when she arrived at the flat, the atmosphere was already beginning to escalate. The group hadn't been able to sell Jamie's laptop. The cash generator store had refused it without a charger. So instead, Chalk went with Jamie to a cash point, trying to kind of look for his PIN number when he typed it in at the cash point so that she could then steal his card and rob him that way. But he got a bit suspicious, so they all just returned to the flat. Chalk showed Amber Patterson on her phone one of the photos of what had happened to Jamie on the 21st of March and how it had come about. And delighting in the sense of power that she felt, Chalk realised that she could quite easily manipulate Nichols back into more violence. So once again, Chalk chose to make up a lie about Jamie. She told Nichols on Thursday the 5th of April that Jamie had tried it on with Amber. And this, of course, was a red flag to a bull. He grabbed a baseball bat, lured Jamie into the bedroom and began hitting him. Dwyer Skeets kicked Jamie in the face. They put Jamie into a wardrobe. He was absolutely soaked in his own blood that night. And Nichols later told police Jamie was tied up and left in a duvet and he was actually gagged with a sock to stop him crying out for help. They then took his card and Woodmancy withdrew £20 at the cash point. Chalk and Amber left in a taxi to go to Asda and they bought carpet cleaner. Now, Amber had apparently attempted to leave at this point. That trip to Asda was kind of her excuse of how she could get away. But Dwyer Skeet somehow engineered it that she left her handbag behind, meaning she'd have to oh, come that's back. So sneaky. And were they go sorry, were they going to Asda to get carpet cleaner to clean up blood stains from the carpet? Yeah. So 
so I think Amber was like, oh, I just need to go out. I'm going to call a taxi because I need to go to Asda. And she was actually going to go call the police at this point. In her mind, that was what she was planning to do. And then Chalk was like, oh, brilliant. I'll come with you too because we're going to need carpet cleaner because of all the mess that Jamie's made all over the floor. Uh, and okay. so, and yeah. she, she, Donna might have known that uh, that was Amber was a bit of a threat to them at that point Possibly, and was maybe yeah. going to tell the police. So it's kind of like, I'll go with you and make sure I can control you and what you do. A hundred percent. And on her return, she found herself even more involved, at least by just her presence in yet more violent attacks. So when they got back to the flat, Jamie was then sitting on a cabinet, his knees up to his chest. He had black eyes, he had a swollen nose, and he was bleeding from his mouth. And there was blood all over his clothes, his head and his hands. There were bloodstains all over the bedroom. And Amber described how the walls of the flat were blood spattered. When Jamie was eventually let out of the wardrobe that he'd been shut in after the attack, he was then forced to clean up his own blood from the carpet whilst they all laughed at him. Oh, I, I honestly, I'm not just saying it, but I actually feel a bit sick from picturing that scene, that bedroom mm-hmm. with blood everywhere and blood on the walls. And yeah, I can really picture that and that group just laughing about it. It's just, it literally is sickening. And Amber, who's already kind of tried to get away and do something, she's you know, like how she must have felt coming back and then feeling forced to stay in a a room and that either she's in the same room or she can hear everything that's happening and she can see what's going on. Yeah, she or, you know, also you're seeing this gang behave in that way violently and are you going to want to go against them or say, I want to get the fuck out of here or I'm going to call the police or stop because you're seeing what they're doing to someone. Are you going to be next? So I'm sure she... I don't know her whole story, but I'm sure she was in fear of her own safety at this point. I really agree. And yeah, we don't know loads about her background, but from what I've read and from like the judges comments, which we will go on to later, she was not in a position that she felt able to do anything. And I think me or you, I could, if I needed to leave because I felt threatened by a group, I could go to so many different places I could get in a, in my car, I could get on my motorbike, mm. I would have a way to escape, I would have something I could do. I'd have money behind me to make that journey. Perhaps she just wouldn't have been in a position where she could have done anything. Maybe that one taxi was all of her money and she'd had her last try to get away. And she and she she's rocked up because it, was this the night that they were planning on going to that rave it's in the Bournemouth? night before. The night before. So, you know, she's rocked up to this squat, hoping to party and have a good time. And that's what she's thinking. Reconnect with an ex or, you know, somebody she's seeing again. And it's all just descending into merry hell. Yeah. So the last time that Jamie had seen his family prior to this weekend, he had seemed uncharacteristically quiet. He was not his usual self. He'd been withdrawn. I mean, he'd gone through a breakup. They knew that there were things going on. But he just wasn't himself at all. And they began to get worried about the fact that he hadn't been seen or heard from. A friend had kind of said to them, you know, where's Jamie? The family got really worried. So they reported Jamie as a missing person to the police on the Friday. A missing persons hunt was launched as he was deemed medium risk that his family were told. And they immediately began trying to trace him. Jamie's dad later said, when he was just missing, we were not that concerned. Jamie had a habit of just upping and going without telling people when he wanted to move on. We were busy trying to find out where he was. We were phoning people, putting things on Facebook. 
But little did they know, the night before he had been so badly beaten and was left tied up and gagged in the bedroom of the flat. His attackers offered him a glass of water and a cigarette, but they did nothing to actually help him in any way. He needed to go to the hospital, not to have a glass of water and a cigarette. On the Friday morning, Chalk sent Nichols a text message. In it, she apparently said something about how he needed to come back to the flat because they were going to have to do it again, i.e. beat Jamie up some more. So Nichols told how he went to the flat carrying trousers, a jumper and shoes because he was expecting to go with Chalk, Woodmancy and Dwyer Skeets to the rave in Bournemouth that night. And when he got there, he saw Jamie sat on the floor in the lounge. He described him as battered and bruised. Chalk was really worried that he was going to go to the police. But Nichols asked Jamie about this and he said, he said that he wasn't going. He swore to me that he wouldn't do it. Nichols apparently tried to encourage Dwyer Skeets and Woodmancy to let Jamie go, but he was told by them, we can't, it's too risky. He'll grass us up and you can't go to the rave. Of course, it's hard to know exactly who said what, and I doubt that we'll ever have the full truth about why this all escalated so much. A lot of Nichols' story was very much trying to detach himself from being the ringleader, but a lot of the evidence showed that he was the ringleader and he was the most violent. So it's a really, really hard one when you've only kind of got his word for what was said. So whilst we will never have the full truth about why things escalated as badly as they did, what we do know is that by the Friday morning, as the gang left Jamie to go and try and sell his laptop in Southampton again, Jamie Dack was in a bad way. He was incapable of responding properly to any questions. He really needed medical attention. But instead the group left him in the squat and this time they did manage to sell the computer. Amber did leave at this point. She was determined to go to the police and get help. For reasons I'm not sure on fully, but reading between the lines, it would appear that she was just not mentally strong enough to do this. Um, She wasn't able to go to the police and she didn't go and report what was going on at the time. However, months later in sentencing, the judge actually praised Amber in her determination to try and go to the police. And while she didn't have the willpower to do this on the Friday, she did go to the police on the 9th and she very bravely gave evidence at trial which is at least something. In his sentencing remarks, the judge said of Amber, Amber Patterson has been vilified by those who have not understood the chilling characteristics of what happened in the flat that evening, how she had been drawn into the plans of those present, the impact of events that evening upon her, and the extent to which her mental state deprived her of any real ability to do anything about what had happened. And there is a lot to be said for what fear will do to someone, isn't there? Wow, that's that's quite rare for a judge to almost issue a bit of a warning you know don't don't vilify this woman for not speaking up and getting police involved sooner because you don't know the full details of it I also think the fact that Amber testified was probably a real uh, sort of nail in the coffin for these four defendants in terms of them actually being found guilty of this crime because she was there she was a witness and she would have been able to testify as to what she actually saw. And the others would have possibly, I guess, gone on to blame each other or just lied. So you have got this person there that actually wasn't involved, but was there a fly on the wall, saw it all, and that would have been compelling for a jury. Absolutely. And I I really feel for her because you can imagine how much social media or, you know, it wasn't huge back then, but it was still pretty big the comments people would have made on social media about her 
it's easy, like I said at the top of the episode, it's easy for me to say if I was in a group that this happened, I would not join in. I'm pretty certain I would not, well, I can guarantee you I wouldn't join in, but I'm pretty certain I would just get myself out of that situation, but I would go and call the police. That's easy for me to say when I'm not in a room with a load of people in potentially a very vulnerable situation myself as well. I don't know what her life was like at this point. So it was very, very wonderful of that judge to really commend her. And I, I know we said it, we don't know Amber's situation. We don't know what kind of life she was leading up, up to this point. But I do kind of get the impression that, as I said, she just rocked up ready to have fun, thinking that she's going to be reconnecting with this ex and his friends and they're all going to go out and have a great time. And I can sort of, um, I can, it resonates a bit because I, I, I can't think of anything, any specific situations I've been in, but I know that I've been in situations where I've I've rocked up to something thinking it's it's going to be like this and then you get there and it's like oh shit I'm not prepared for this I didn't think I'd be walking into this situation I thought we were just here to have a good time or something mm. and then you've got people I don't know doing drugs and stuff and you just don't want to see it so yeah I I definitely have been in those situations where you just walk through the door and immediately you think oh fuck I don't want to be here and I didn't know it was going to be like this and it's too Mm. late and fucked now. How am I going to get away from here? Without looking like I'm rude or without looking like this or that, yeah. So let's get back to the group. As the day progressed, this evil mood just escalated. Knowing it would wind the men up, Chalk commented that Jamie was a weirdo or something along those lines. She also described Jamie as a nonce. Nichols has later stated the things that wind him up the most in life are women being abused by men and sexual abuse on women and on children. He said, I cannot bear the thought of somebody who would do something like that. That is a red flag for me. It's like a red rag to a bull. And I just find myself hating that person and having to inflict some sort of punishment. So Chalk knew exactly what she was doing. This, This was like the at least the third thing that she'd said, which described Jamie, complete lies as some sort of sexual predator. And And the violence just continued. And she knew that would flick that switch. It was a trigger for him. absolutely did. More violence was inflicted on Jamie. The injuries worsened to stabbings. And whilst this was happening, more photos were taken by the cruel gang. Jamie was also told, if you don't stop crying, the beatings are going to get worse. In one of the photos that was taken, Jamie was naked from the waist up and he was bleeding from stabbed wounds to his arms. And these photos, like those taken the previous day, were clearly they were clearly taken to get pleasure and satisfaction from his injuries. Other images showed Jamie as he lay badly beaten in a pool of blood. And you know you can look at how long photos have been on people's phones for and when people have viewed them and that sort of thing. They were able to determine that Chalk and Dwyer Skeets had kept those photos and looked at them and then they deleted them like a lot later but they'd kept them it wasn't like you could try and say well someone sent it to me and I deleted it straight away because it was horrible they'd kept those photos for their sick pleasure and looked at them repeatedly Mm -hmm. Jamie had begged please leave me be leave me alone let me go please but Nichols told him that he couldn't because things had gone too far He told the police then that he said, if I let you go, you'll go to the old bill. He promised me that he wouldn't. And I said, I couldn't take that chance. I said to him, you know what is going to happen. And he was like, yeah. 
Nichols struck Jamie about 10 times with a baseball bat about the head and face and Jamie was then stabbed repeatedly in the neck, chest, abdomen, legs and shoulder as well as being beaten by the three men who used not only the bat but also their fists, their feet, broken bottles and kitchen knives. Nichols said about how he'd hit Jamie with a bottle about 30 times until it broke and that he was goaded by the two other men who said, if you're going to do it properly, don't tickle him. And that, he said, made him more angry. So, you know, he's trying to almost blame them, like they're taking the mick out of me. So I had to do it. And to, they've hit him with a bottle, he's hit him with a bottle 30 times before it smashes. And just all these other injuries as well. It's just, yeah, I mean, this is just, this is torturous. The cruel man then took a photo of Jamie in his last moments as he knelt, bleeding from stab wounds and begging for his life, just moments before the final blow was struck. Chalk later stated that she was told by Nichols if she didn't help to clean up, she would go the same way as Jamie, and that she had thought about running away, about calling the police, but Nichols, brandishing a knife, forced her not to. Calling the police, what, to grass herself up for fucking orchestrating this whole damn thing? However, what I would say, and I'm not going to defend her very much because I think she's a horrible, horrible person, but she never threw a punch or or stabbed him. And I think she... I just don't care. I don't think she quite realised how far it was going to go. From reading about this case, I think she enjoyed the beating up side of things and she enjoyed having that power over the men and making mm. up all of these lies and she is absolutely despicable but i do think that when it got too far she absolutely regretted it and hated it but it had gone too far then and she's got no going back I, I do accept that but she has ultimately got blood on her yeah, hands 100 percent. jamie's blood-soaked body was left in the first floor flat, whilst Woodmancy, Chalk and Dwyer Skeets went to that rave that they'd planned to go to, and Nichols went home to the Southampton Street Hostel where he lived. Now, as if this case couldn't get any worse, on the Saturday night, the men realised they needed to get rid of the evidence of their attack on Jamie. So Chalk, Dwyer Skeets and Woodmancy had all taken a train to Bournemouth that Friday evening and spent the night partying. They'd returned back to Southampton at 6.30am the next day. And so that Saturday, they were joined again at the squat by Nichols. He'd brought a washing line to tie up Jamie's body and they put a plan into place. So I just, I have to kind of focus on the fact that they just went to a rave and got off their tits having a great old time, leaving his body in the flat. Like, what the hell? Um, In a a way, I can, I'm not saying I can understand it, but I can almost understand the wanting to put that out of their minds for that night because I think it would have really sunk in what they've done these are horrible violent people but that scene would have replayed over in their heads and they would be thinking about the consequences of this so maybe it's a way to just get it out of their heads yeah and just let's Mm. just take a load of ecstasy and coke and whatever else they probably took that night and get off our heads and dance the night away and forget about it for a few hours but then they are back at this squat the next day, no sleep, on the come down, having to deal with this gruesome scene. I can only imagine how that yeah. would have been, that reality would have slapped them in the face. Yeah. That is exactly how I was imagining it as well, because there's no discussion anywhere. There's no there's no proof of what went on at that rave, whether or not they just no. drank alcohol or not. But that was exactly my impression of of what they would have been doing and how it would have 
how it would have played out. And then they get the train back, they go back to the flat and then reality just sinks in. Oh, the smell, you mm-hmm. know, already very sadly, Jamie's corpse would have started to decay and there would be a smell and there'd be, yeah, just, just blood, blood on its own smells horrendous enough, doesn't it? So yeah. And that paranoia perhaps mm-hmm. as a side effect from the drugs that they most likely would have taken on the Friday night would have gone into overdrive. So I'm not, there's no pity for them, but fuck me, would that have slapped them in the face of shit? What have we done? Yeah. And I hope it did. I really hope it did. Yeah. But I'm I'm not sure. I don't know whether it was just more of well, we don't want to get into trouble for this. Yeah, it I could feel have just like been autopilot. With them. We need to sort this yeah. shit out, and we'll get wrecked tonight to get over this. So they made a plan. They put a plan into place, and they would have spent all day in the flat where Jamie was still, because it wasn't until nightfall and darkness before they could put their plan into place. At about midnight, they took two bins from outside the property, wheeled them into the flat. They were disturbed by neighbours, but that just didn't deter them. The wheelie bins from outside the flat were used to, one of them to carry Jamie's body, and the other carried the material from the flats down, and then they carried them to a nearby industrial estate. As they wheeled the bins, they were confronted by officers in a passing police car who ordered that they put the bins back. So they did. The officers obviously thought they were just idiots messing around with bins so they put them back in the area went back to the flat waited enough time for the police to not be watching and headed back out again at one point the bin with jamie's body inside tipped up and he fell out legs first so whilst they were going along and they dragged these wheelie bins along to this industrial estate the the wheelie bin was then thrown on top inside of an industrial bin so the one with Jamie's body in, they put it into this industrial bin and then they poured petrol all over it. So Nichols and Woodmancy had bought petrol earlier in the day, part of their plan, and then they set it alight. But it was such a fierce and sudden blaze that the three men ran away. They forgot to light the second bin that was contained, that contained all of that bloodstained evidence. They literally were so shocked by how severe mm. the fire was immediately. And... At this point, Chalk was at the flat and she was messaging Dwyer Skeet saying something like, oh, I miss you, come home soon, or something creepy and like romantic, uh, but like romantic in any other setting. But you know what he's gone out to do. And it's also, just creepy. Uh, while he was disposing of Jamie's body, Donna Chalk would have been having to do, as she was told, and uh, allegedly, like she says, and be cleaning up that yeah, flat. Yeah, cleaning up as so, much as possible. Literally, I mean, I had to do this recently. I won't go into the details. I had to clean up half a pint of blood off my own patio. And I can tell you, scrubbing blood is it's a horrible, vile thing to do. It's so um, viscous, isn't it? And it it's stains just gross. And, yeah. Yeah, and you, you've got like a bucket of clean water to help you scrub it. And within about five seconds, that water, it just resembles the sort of lighter coloured version of blood. It's just mm. vile. So, you know, that would have been a horrific task that she was dealing with. And then in between, like you say, she's sending these romantic messages to Nichols. I can't wait for you to come back. Absolutely sick. Jamie's body was discovered burning in the bin on Easter Sunday. A fireman described the sickening moment that he discovered the body. So they'd arrived at the early hours of the morning 
because obviously people had reported that there was a fire and they arrived to five foot flames coming out of the top of this metal bin. He and his colleague used a pressure hose to put out the blaze before examining the contents of the bin and inside he saw what he thought at first was a shop mannequin but on further inspection turned out to be a badly burned body and obviously they were looking for Jamie anyway, he was a missing person. Um, However, he was actually identified by his dental records because of the extent of the damage caused by the fire. The police obviously had a pretty decent idea who it would be, but they that's how they had to find out for definite. Further examination by police revealed that the bin also contained the remains of a green household waste bin that had melted in the heat of the fire, and a second version of that wheelie bin was left next to the fire, and in that they found all of that physical evidence of what had happened within the flat. I just think this is another horribly cruel element of this case for Jamie's family because it would have been bad enough to have had him back beaten but he they may have been you know you don't know for definite but you he may have been able to see him again the um funeral home may have been able to get him into a state where they could come and say their goodbyes I don't know for definite I I might be hoping for something that wouldn't happen but in this case there is no way He's been completely burned to nothing. Yeah, no no dignity afforded to him in death, as there wasn't in life. But you're right, some people really need to, in circumstances like this in particular, really need to see their loved one's body so that they can actually accept that they are dead. They actually need to see that as part of that acceptance and they can't move past that sometimes. So they were absolutely deprived of that. If that was something that they needed, that was not going to be afforded to them, given the state of his remains. And the police worked really quickly. They knew who had done this within days and arrests were made really, really quickly. The group weren't, they hadn't made very good plans. They hadn't kept their heads down. They hadn't been quiet about what had happened. It was obvious pretty much straight away who was responsible. News reports reported on four people being arrested almost the next day. It was really, really quick. And soon enough, they were in in court standing trial for murder. But the first trial of the four was halted in November 2012 when Lee Nichols decided to change his plea to guilty whilst on the stand. He, along with the others, had denied the murder charge that was put to them, but he stopped his questioning to request his charge be read to him again, and at this point he pleaded guilty. After Nichols's dramatic change of plea, jurors formally returned a guilty verdict on him for the murder charge. The retrial for the other three began at Winchester Crown Court on the 15th of April 2013. Once again, Jamie's loved ones had to sit through torturous descriptions of the violent death that he had suffered. Once again, his family had to see photos of him in his last moments brought to the court as evidence. Finally, jurors returned unanimous guilty verdicts against the trio after just 10 hours of deliberating. In June 2013, the four were back in court for sentencing. The judge reiterated the aggravating factors of Jamie Dack's mental and physical suffering and the way that the group disposed of his body. And he said to the four, To you, Lee Nichols, you are the leader and the sentence must recognise this. I will make a modest allowance for your plea of guilty and your remorse, but both came far too late for anything more. I do not consider that mental disability lowered your degree of culpability to any significant extent. I loved how he was like, I'll make a modest allowance, but it's too little too late. 
I, I thought exactly the same. Mm-hmm. He's probably legally bound to do something, but it's probably going to be the absolute minimum. Yeah. He said, to you, Ryan Woodmancy, I will make some allowance for the substantial extent to which you gave a true account to the police and for the fact that you are not a leader, but a follower. To you, Andrew Dwyer Skeets, there is little that I can give by way of mitigation other than to recognise that you too were not a leader, but a follower. To you, Donna Chalk, I give a substantial allowance for the fact that you envisaged no more than grievous bodily harm, for your lack of premeditation, for your age, and for the matters described in the report of Dr. Clark, along with the fact that you inflicted none of the physical injuries yourself. And I thought that was quite interesting. An allowance is given for the fact that she genuinely didn't think anything more than beating him up would happen. Mm. It's still disgraceful that you would encourage any sort of it, but... um, in, and there interesting was, that interesting that the judge says matters described in the report yeah. of Dr. Clark. So I guess there's some mitigation around mental health. Definitely. For her. Um, yeah. And there's been a lot said. I personally think it doesn't make any difference, but there's been a lot said about the fact that she was very young. Um, she was in herself quite vulnerable. And actually, she almost... I don't know, like the reveling in being able to get the attention from the men, it it was just put in the wrong way. It was put the wrong kind of, she just went down the wrong channels with that. She was, she needed that attention and to get some sort of glorification from them. I personally think it's still absolute nonsense. And we've all been 22 at some point in our lives and not decided to encourage men to fancy us by pretending that someone else did something so they get beaten up i just i think it's not really an excuse but there was a there was definitely some sort of reason there about how young she was how impressionable she was how vulnerable she was and that she she just didn't really i don't want to say it but apparently like she didn't really know any better however we we say all of this and i've just kind of like i could see a bit further down in the notes the sentence and I know you'll talk a bit about what happened around the the sentencing but uh you know it's still a chunky sentence that she gets so yeah uh you know that it is reflected that actually although she didn't orchestrate a murder her actions got the ball rolling and she's totally culpable in Jamie's death yeah her purposeful actions as well she knew what she was doing when she was making up those lies yeah So for all four of them, the judge sentenced them to life with a minimum term and confirmed to them, when I come to the minimum that you will serve, I make it plain that I'm not ordering that you be released at the end of it. That will be a matter for the parole board. Only when it has will the board be entitled for the first time to decide whether it's safe to release you. And if the board does release you, you will remain on licence and liable to recall for the rest of your life. So it it was absolutely life with a minimum term. And you could tell from the judge's right sort of summing up in his messages to these four how absolutely despicable he found them so lee nichols had a minimum term of 34 years ryan woodmancy 30 years andrew dwyer skeets 32 years and donna chalk 25 years and there was a successful appeal in which they had their sentences cut so the appeal judge ruled that the minimum terms were manifestly excessive so you kind of do get the impression that that first judge really, really was just so disgusted by them that they wanted to just throw the book at them. On appeal, it was kind of actually, it was quite excessive. So Nichols was dropped from 34 years to 31 um, for his term. And then to maintain proportionality with that, 
the appeal reduced Dwyer Skeets' sentence from 32 years to 29 years, Woodmancy's from 30 to 27, and receiving the largest cut in sentence was Chalk, who was 20 and described as vulnerable at the time of the killing. Um, so she was then told rather than 25 years, she would then serve 20 years. And the judge described her as a damaged individual who could be distinguished from the other three. God, there was lot, something. A lot of fucking sympathy with her. I wonder if certain things can't be reported, I guess. That had uh, happened to her, in her, in, background. her in her childhood yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there, there is There's obviously something. more that we don't know. However, it wasn't overturned at all. She wasn't then given... Yeah any sort of get out it's still life with a minimum term of 20 years that's it it's not kind of like oh she'll be out in term for good behavior when it's a life sentence with a minimum term that and they didn't reduce her to manslaughter either which obviously that was that could have been the case it could have been manslaughter or it could have been like um inciting or anything like that she was still even with these mitigating circumstances it was still murder yeah she will be out in 10 years time if she behaves herself because mm-hmm. this is 10 years ago. And I'd love it if she was able to get some sort of actual peace and support yeah. and, and help. Jamie's dad said after the appeal verdicts, we think about what happened to Jamie every single day and we must live with that and now try and move forward with our lives. So I wanted to make a huge thank you to Kate's brilliant article for a lot of the intro with today's episode. And I'm going to make sure I get a link posted on our socials because she's covered loads more than the couple of bits that I read out. Um, and hers was just probably the article that stood out for me when I was looking into mob or herd or um, hive mentality. But before we finish, I thought I would finish the episode on some of her thoughts about how to avoid being pulled in PSA by mob mentality. coming right up. Mm. So there are a few simple ways. This is what Kate Brush has written. There are a few simple ways to avoid getting pulled into mob mentality. First, take time to think through your responses and actions before making them. It's best not to engage when feeling stressed, pressured or disconnected. Second, always be sure to research before forming an opinion and be open to new information that emerges. This will help individuals form their own thoughts and ideas rather than copying those of their peers. Third, find comfort in being unique and develop the courage to stand out from the crowd. This includes speaking out against bullies and others that are causing harm. Oh, I, lo- I love that third point. That's really powerful, isn't it? To just try and embrace that uniqueness and not go with the herd and, yeah, speak up against people that are doing bad things and causing harm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. What a legend. So there we go, guys. Thank you for joining us. Um, Welcome to season 10. We're back. It's very exciting. And... Yeah, keep your eyes and ears peeled for further information about the website, about the merchandise. In the meantime, if you want to support us on Patreon, if you're able to do that, it does make a massive difference to us. It will help us quit our jobs and be full-time podcasters, so please do it. (laughs) Uh, Just head to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast and we'd be so grateful, please. Oh my God, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) Even if Mark gets to drop one morning... That, I'll take it. I'll take, you take it. it. Yeah, mm. I would. And we can do more content then. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. Thank you, Beth. And it was a real toughie. And um, thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back next week with another episode. So we will see you then. See you then. Bye. Bye.
Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now, each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.